Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. As soon as he's back, we'll jump right back in with A Song of Ice and Fire with Sansa's third chapter, In a Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm picking up where I left off going through J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, I finished up Book 4, Chapter 8 of The Lord of the Rings, The Stairs of Kirithungal. And today, I'm wrapping up Book 4 as a whole, with Chapter 9, Shelob's Lair, and Chapter 10, The Choices of Master Samwise. And I'm so glad to be having a guest on for this episode as we wrap up Book 4. Everyone say hi to Benjamin Nielsen. Thanks so much for coming on, Ben. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a longtime uh, fan of the podcast, and I'm excited to talk about two of my absolute favorite chapters. I couldn't agree more. This is definitely my favorite part of book four. It's it's so creepy and so scary, but it's also really rousing, especially when you get to some of the stuff with Sam. And the scale narrows down to this like this fine point. But the writing really opens up, plunging us into some of the most effectively atmospheric writing in all of fantasy, before hitting us with multiple gut punches in terms of the plot twists. It's so cathartic because all the character work Tolkien has been doing with Frodo and Gollum, and especially Sam, pays off in the middle of these tense, suspenseful scenes. All through book four, the quest has rested on the edge of a knife, and now it cuts and starts to bleed. It is the dawning of March 13th, but there is no daylight to be seen. Again, that atmosphere. You're surrounded by smoke and shadow. Moral blindness as well as literal. Day here means nothing more than the smoke turning slightly gray to reflect the ambiguity of Gollum. The rocks are torn and weathered, and there's no sound. All the big picture stuff has shrunk down. They are alone in the killing grounds. We've gone from the fragile, wounded plant life of Athelion to the corrupted flowers of Minas Morgul, and now to, well, nothing. Life in the void. It's haunted in the ghostly sense, but also in the sense that haunts are feeding grounds for animals. That's a bit I love in Stephen King's It, when one of the characters is like going through the dictionary definition of haunted, and he got past the ghost bits, he's like a feeding ground for animals. I think that's what's going on in my town. Gollum calls it only the tunnel, but Tolkien tells us it's called Torik Ungol, or Shelob's Lair. And that's how we first hear about she, as Gollum called her, caught up in language and names. She's well known enough to have entered the stories... But those stories are too old for the hobbits to know them until it's too late. As they approach the opening of this tunnel, they can smell it long before they see what's inside. I love that. And it smells different from Minas Morgul. It's not as sickly. It's more of a heavy, foul stench. Tolkien describes it as the smell of filth being hoarded. And the use of hoarded there, I think, should make us think of Smaug. The hobbits keep comparing their story to Bilbo's. But every parallel beat is darker and more dangerous. Fitting how they were talking about how different it is to live inside a story. They've gone through their own versions of Mirkwood, they've got a much more hardcore version of the Lonely Mountain ahead, and now they get a version of Smaug's Lair with no gold nor grandeur. No possibility of restoration nor redemption. And their guide is not Thorin Oakenshield, but Gollum. And he is walking them into a trap. Sam thinks maybe Gollum doesn't mind the stink, being a stinker. Gollum absorbs that one last insult, and in his own way, he tells Sam the truth. You don't know what I mind. You don't know what I can bear. You think darkness is your ally? You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. Gollum is about to show them, in monstrous form, what he's been through and what he's like inside. So you're saying that it might be a bit dark at this point? A little bit. A tiny <laughs> bit dark. It is dark. Night always had been, and always would be, and night was all. 
that, that great sense of not even having a day to wait for. It's never going to come. And Tolkien also compares this part of the story to Moria. But he writes that even in Moria, you felt a sense of space, the movement of air through huge halls. Here, the air itself seems to die. Everything is stagnant and gross, yet the atmosphere is so powerful that it quickly becomes hard to remember anything else. The only sense remaining to them is touch. And even the enhancement of that sense is painful, Tolkien writes. That's how hideous a place this is, that it hurts even when you're doing it right. The darkness seems like a living thing, something palpable and tangible, more than merely the absence of light. It isolates the hobbits not only from the outside world and their memories of home, but from each other. The tunnel is so wide that they're separated, cut off alone in the darkness, Tolkien writes. It's like an umbilical cord has been cut, or like they've been banished down to hell. As they continue through the tunnel, Tolkien has some frankly confusing descriptive text <laughs> about the passage that they are in. Um, I did reread it a few times and was still a bit confused. There are numerous side tunnels described that they begin to overlap in the mind of the reader, or at least this reader. Uh, so wait, how many are leading left? Have we turned now? I thought there's one to the left, but now there's two to the right. Um, it's becoming clear that the hobbits aren't in a tunnel. They're in a web. To make sure they don't become lost or perhaps to provide some comfort, Sam uh, left the tunnel side and shrank towards Frodo and their hands met and clasped. And so together they still went on. I understand the feeling. I think I'd clasp a hand too if I was walking through this tunnel web. I would need it. Yeah, that's a beautiful moment. All they've got is each other in here. Everything else is fading like it was a dream. And this is the world as it actually exists. They lose all sense of time. Even the sense of touch fades. And all they have is the will to keep going. Tolkien is stripping down the quest as far as he can go. And those other passages you mentioned, that makes me think of a labyrinth, like Frodo and Sam are wandering a maze with something even worse than the Minotaur waiting for them. And Tolkien keeps ramping up the horror, the hobbits brushing up against something hanging from the ceiling, the smell keeps getting worse, so your shoulders tense up and the bile rises in your throat. Imagine feeling so powerless, so sure something awful is coming, but having no way of knowing what it is, let alone how to stop it. And then they come to a fork in the road, forced to make a choice instead of just following Gollum. And speaking of which, where is the little bastard? Part of the horror is hearing his footsteps fade. It's like the opposite of Moria, where he was following the Fellowship and Frodo could just barely hear his footsteps. Now they're following him, and he has abandoned them to the darkness. They pass an opening that seems to bring them into a space larger than the tunnel that they had been traversing. Frodo attempts to uh, near pull Sam along, and they continue. Tolkien plays a good trick here in having Sam think about Gollum and makes the ambiguous statement, I can feel something looking at us. Does that mean Gollum? Or does it horrifically mean something else? When we learn this truth, it becomes clear that they hear it, but they don't see it. A sound, startling and horrible in the heavy padded silence, a gurgling, bubbling noise, and a long, venomous hiss. We are brought back immediately to any night in which we can think we hear something from under the bed, but can't see it. Like we might wish for a parent to come turn on the lights and rescue us, Sam wishes in this moment for old Tom Bombadil, thinking how he saved them in the Barrow Downs, and in doing so, he also remembers and reminds the readers of the file of Galadriel. Tolkien here puts the cherry on top of the scene with prose that could not be out of place in the script of a Cronenberg movie. She that walked in the darkness had heard the elves cry that cry far back in the deeps of time, and she had not heeded it, and it did not daunt her now. We realize there is something between our heroes and freedom from this horror tunnel. 
not far down the tunnel between them and the opening where they had reeled and stumbled. He was aware of eyes growing visible, two great clusters of many-windowed eyes. Monstrous and abominable eyes they were, bestial and yet filled with purpose and with hideous delight, gloating over their prey trapped beyond all hope of escape. Uh, this is such a great horror set piece. Even after reading it so many times, I just had my hair stand up just listening to you read it. Because just, <laughs> it's, just, it's gradually you realize that this place is more than like a flop house for the local orcs. There's a source of the smell. There's a malice lurking here, so intense they can feel it in the air. And if that sounds kind of like Sauron and the Ring, it's not by accident. Shelob's lair is all about plunging you into the horror Pippin felt in the Palantir, which Tolkien kind of cut around in terms of the writing. It's about the horror of being known by an intelligence as vicious and unfeeling as the Dark Lords. Shelob goes from a smell to a sound. And as you were saying, the darkness is really what makes this so awful, because you can imagine anything making that sound. And it's gross as well as scary, the gurgling, the bubbling. You're supposed to flinch and recoil as you read it. The darkness is internal as well as external. Sam feels, quote, a blackness of despair and anger in his heart, which could lead to lethal panic if he doesn't get himself under control. And then, let there be light. As with Shelob, it's abstract before it becomes concrete. A light not in reality, but in Sam's mind. It's so bright that it hurts. The darkness here is so powerful it makes light painful, which is exactly what's happened to Gollum over the course of his life. It makes sense that Sam thinks of Tom and the Barrow Downs, the extremes of light and darkness coexisting right outside the Shire. That's the real path in front of them now, to transcend the shadow or to join it. This time they don't have anyone to come save them. They have to do it themselves. Tom sang about the beginning of the world, and that's kind of what Sam's vision sounds like. Light bursting into the darkness and then refracting into color. All the shades of the rainbow, all the peoples of Middle-earth. And Tolkien's imagery is extraordinary here, even by his very high standards. The vision resolves into a picture that Sam thinks he, he sees as if it's far away. Like the elves, all they have here is the memory of brighter things. And speaking of elves, it's Galadriel that Sam sees, giving them their gifts as they left. Sam's rope has already saved the day. It's time for Frodo's light, which Tolkien neatly reminded us about in the previous chapter, and as you say, also kind of seeds into this chapter early on. It was a light for when all other lights go out, and Frodo only forgot it so he wouldn't use it until now. <laughs> it's the light of heaven, breaking down all borders between ourselves and the world. And Tolkien's prose, it just keeps getting better. It reaches an ecstatic pitch as he describes the communion between Frodo and the light. His hope giving it the power to grow from a rising star struggling in mist to a dazzling silver flame. That further cements his hope. This light embodies the stars and the Silmarils. It's Prometheus's fire and the glow of Christian halos and the spark of the Big Bang. But above all, it's hope. Something for Frodo to believe in when he's lost the ability to believe in himself. It burns without consuming. It feels tangible as crystal. It's a miracle. And Frodo prays to it in the voice of God speaking through him. The opposite of the precious. Something that will return the love you give to it. The light needs Frodo and Sam as much as they need it. But the light can't keep darkness at bay forever. That's why Sauron is still around, after all, and why Frodo has to leave Middle-earth behind at the end. There are other potencies at work, Tolkien writes. I love that phrase, other potencies, conjuring up the image of apothecaries and witches' brews, elements building over time, like the smell in this cave, into something foul. Time is the key. These dark powers are old, like the nameless things Gandalf saw gnawing at the foundations of the earth while fighting the Balrog. They're older even than language. 
Like Gollum, Tolkien refers to Shelob at first only as she, like a nickname, capital S, a godlike figure of fear. She's heard all the prayers. She saw the elves at their peak when they were more than just stories to kindle hope in the heart. And even then, they didn't frighten her. She frightens others, never the other way around. As with Minas Morgul down below, it's all about eyes, seeing and being seen. The hobbits have been hiding all through their quest, and being seen like Shelob feels like being seen by Sauron's eye. Maybe worse, because Shelob has two of them. And those two splinter into compound eyes, a cluster of windows, Tolkien writes, like they're being watched by a hive mind. It's very similar to Saruman at Isengard, when every window seemed to be watching our heroes. The coming menace was unmasked at last, Tolkien writes. The hideous catharsis of all that creepy feeling finally becoming embodied. The fire in those eyes throws back the starlight, breaking it apart, and Frodo can see now that those eyes are gloating. They've got him trapped and can feed. And terrific word choices Tolkien peppers in here, dreadful, baleful, abominable. They bear the stench of death. This is the end of the road. Imagine sitting in Bag End and being told it would end like this. But that hopelessness ends up inspiring Frodo. He's got nothing left to lose. He pulls out Sting and stands ready, not knowing whether it's hope or folly, and not caring. And the monster retreats. It no longer has to fear the sun or the moon, but now it's like a star has fallen to earth, a gift from the gods to a forsaken world. As Sam says, it would make a song worthy of the elves, assuming they live long enough to tell the tale. And Tolkien tells us, and so they turned once more to run out of that hideous den. They realize it, but in a momentary respite when, in amazement, they hit a barrier. Frodo looked and before him saw a grayness, which the radiance of the star glass did not pierce and did not illuminate, as if it were a shadow that being cast by no light, no light could dissipate. Cobwebs. And we get a delightful pearl of Sam wisdom here. Gnats in a net. May the curse of Faramir bite that golem and bite him quick. They hack at the cobweb in vain until Frodo uses Sting and realizes that it has a sharper bite to cut through the web, and they leap out. The last hours of a somber day were passing, yet it seemed to Frodo that he looked upon a morning of sudden hope. Sam joins him, and they seem to exit. Too little did he or his master know of the craft of Shelob. She had many exits from her lair. We're back in the web. It's at that point that we get a Tolkien descriptive deep dive, as we've seen repeatedly. Um, but this is certainly, for me at least, one for the ages. Um, all three ages, perhaps. We finally, <laughs> after being menaced for pages, hear of Shelob. Age long she had dwelt, an evil thing in spider form, even such as once of old had lived in the lands of the elves in the west that is now under the sea. She was there who was there before Sauron, served none but herself, drinking the blood of elves and men, bloated and grown fat, with endless brooding on her feasts. All living things were her food, and her vomit darkness. Lesser broods, bastards of the miserable mates, her own offspring that she slew, last child of Ungoliant to trouble this unhappy world. She is so old that the land in which she once lived has been buried in the War of Wrath for over two ages. She is the daughter or descendant of the Great Angoliant. She lives in Mordor, but does not serve the Dark Lord. She gives birth to the progenitors of these horrible spiders from the Hobbit and eats her mates. It is clear that Sauron knows of her, but finds her more helpful, even occasionally sending her prisoners to de horrifically devour. It's small wonder that Gollum knew and worshipped her from the first time they met. But her lust was not his lust. 
It becomes clear that the plan all along has been that Gollum would bring her more palatable prey than the usual disgusting orc, and he would be able to scavenge the ring from the discarded bones and clothes of the hobbits. Here we receive confirmation of Sam's worry about what Gollum was up to while off sneaking. In a moment, Sam sees that uh, Sting is glowing blue, and yet there is a red light in the tower. Immediately, returning quickly to his long habit of secrecy, he closed his hand around the precious file. Uh, the lights go out, and we know that when the lights go out, Shelob attacks. And this is where the pace really quickens for this part of the story. Great horns she had, a huge swollen body, a vast bloated bag. She bounds between the hobbits. Gollum seizes Sam from behind, and in the struggle, Sam uses his cane to crack Gollum across the arm. And as he scampers away, Sam remembers, unfortunately, that Frodo was being chased by Shelob. Tolkien tells us he was too late. So far, Gollum's plot had succeeded. Yeah, I love how Tolkien plays this, making us think the danger has passed, only to unveil it in full. Frodo cuts their way free and leads them on joyfully, Tolkien writing that Frodo is drunk on relief and sunlight, which, of course, blinds him to the ongoing threat. It's a very familiar moment, I think. You're so desperate for a bad situation to end that you just get ahead of yourself. A morning of sudden hope, Tolkien writes, we're almost there, so close to the end after all that. And then Tolkien tells us her name, Shelob. Language is the key, as always. By learning her name, we know it's not over yet. Before we see Shelob, as you say, we see her webs, and we suddenly realize what she must be. A spider. A giant spider. And Tolkien pulls back from the Hobbit's POV to describe her at length, delighting in all the monstrous details of a creature design he clearly fell in love with. It makes sense that she fears Galadriel's light, because Shelob is basically the anti-Galadriel, in the same way Tom Bombadil is the anti-Sauron. Tolkien follows up all the talk about Galadriel in Athelion with her monstrous mirror image, another all-powerful female figure at the center of their domain. Where Galadriel is compassionate, Shelob is solipsistic. Where Galadriel honors her mate, Shelob devours hers. She's a literal black widow, an eight-legged femme fatale. Not only that, Shelob's mates are also her children, an incestuous cannibalistic cycle that reminds me of Satan fathering death upon his own daughter's sin in Paradise Lost. And Shelob comes up a lot in the scholarship, in the scholarly writing around Tolkien. Peter Goslin argues in Jungian terms that Galadriel and Shelob are light and dark anima figures, they're like primal goddesses. Mac Fenwick puts the contrast in Homeric terms, that Galadriel is like Circe or Calypso, and Shelob is like Scylla and Charybdis, or maybe a monstrous version of the Sirens. Whatever your reference point, I think the idea is that if Galadriel had surrendered to the temptation of the ring, Shelob is who she would have become, just like how Gollum shows Frodo what he could become. Tolkien may also have been drawing in part from the Greek myth of Arachne, and trying to create his own mythic monster to match Grendel and his mother. Tolkien was more directly inspired by his son Michael's arachnophobia and his own encounters with various species in South Africa. He locks into a primal fear and repulsion with Shelob's design, something we've been waiting to see, but now wish we could forget. And uh, Stephen King was obviously heavily influenced by this creature design when he wrote uh, It, and in, in both cases you have this kind of connection to how Lovecraft wrote horror, that it's, it's not really literally a giant spider, but an, an evil force that takes the form of a spider, in part because that's what's terrifying to us. A loathly shape, Tolkien writes, horrible beyond the horror of an evil dream. As you said, though, Ben, the most prominent influence is in-universe, that Shelob is the child of Ungoliant, an even bigger, more terrifying spider-like monster god who plays a major role in the Silmarillion. 
She's the one who teams up with Melkor, aka Morgoth, the overarching devil figure of Tolkien's universe. Ungoliant drinks the light from the two trees in Valinor, the source of the sun and the moon, and also the Silmarils. So it's all coming together here. The sun and the moon from which Shelob hides were derived from the light her mother drank, and the light she shrinks from now is from the same source. All of this has happened before, and all of it will happen again. Like Sam said, they're part of the same stories carrying themselves out, looping round like the road. The past is never dead. It's not even past. But time still marches on. As Tolkien writes, Shelob is the last child of Ungoliant to trouble this unhappy world. She's the last remnant of the old stories, surviving for no reason but to survive. So as gloriously hideous as Tolkien's writing is, describing her going fat on blood and vomiting up shadows, influencing generations of horror writers and metal bands to come, <laughs> there's something pathetic about Shelob. She's only a pale imitation of the way things used to be, and she's hiding from the way the world is now. No wonder she's called Shelob the Great, like Sauron is called the Great. They're very similar this way, the fragments of an older world that is breaking down. Sauron is aware of her, but doesn't consider her a threat. She watches this pathway form better than the orcs ever could. He even feeds her, as you say, allowing her to torment his prisoners so he can watch and enjoy the sport, like this is the Colosseum or an episode of Squid Game. Shelob is another version of Sauron, another version of the antagonist like Saruman or the Balrog. Sauron is powerful enough to threaten Middle-earth and call Shelob his cat, but he's nothing set next to his old boss Morgoth, and same goes for Shelob with regards to her mom on Goliath. We're in the after days, as Legolas said, the last gasp of a mythical world that will give way to the age of men, aka the world of the reader. Shelob is at the end of her rope, so to speak, and so it makes sense that Tolkien links her with Gollum, who was also pathetic even at his most threatening. Gollum is always poking around in dark holes, Tolkien writes, and this time he found something worse than the orcs, something more like Sauron and his ring. He worshipped her like he worshipped the ring, and her will entered into him, much like how Sauron controls his servants. Shelob cuts Gollum off from the light, and also from regret. We've already seen that there's something of Smeagol left in Gollum, some part of him that misses his old life, and that's just too painful to bear. Shelob helped Gollum forget, commit himself utterly to the darkness. She has nothing to forget, nothing to regret. Unlike Sauron, she cares not for rings, nor towers, nor conquests. Only food. She's an ancient godlike being that functions like any beast in the woods, the void at the heart of unlimited power. So naturally, she's the one who allows Gollum to betray the hobbits, forsaking his own best self briefly brought back to life by Frodo's love. They aren't his friends. They are meat in her compound eyes, and Gollum plans to pluck the ring from their bones. It's a ghastly image that shatters Frodo's belief in him, but it's not like Sam gets time to say I told you so. Gollum grabs him from behind before he can warn Frodo about Shelob. Sneak, Gollum whispers in Sam's ears, like he's Littlefinger telling Ned, I warned you not to trust me. You made me this way, at least in part. I am becoming the monster you think I am. This is Gollum's vengeance on the world, planning to get everyone back with the ring, as he says. Is it threatening? Yep. Is it pathetic? Also yep. The villains just have nothing to live for. Their desires are alternately base, petty, and delusional. It's no way to live. Gollum's glee at Sam's downfall ends up being his big mistake. It gives Sam time to fight back, and he does so furiously because he actually does have something to fight for, something to believe in. As Gollum thinks it's all gone wrong since that light bloomed in the darkness, showing this place for what it is, revealing what he's left behind. 
Gollum flees like a coward, but we don't get time to cheer. Sam suddenly realizes that his red rage has blinded him to the danger to Frodo. And so even as Gollum runs away, his plan is working. And so we arrive at uh, chapter 10, The Choices of Master Samwise. And this is where we get Tolkien's big head fake. And really this, I think, is how a fake-out death should be done, right? Relative to the uh, meaningless Aragorn fake-out in the movie of The Two Towers. What looks like the death of Frodo comes as more than a shock in the moment. It feels like a reorganization of the entire narrative structure. And in a way, it is, even when Frodo turns out to be alive. Tolkien is putting the spotlight on Sam, and he walks us through that transition step by step. A patient storyteller, even as he unleashes total chaos. This is a great reminder to us that The Lord of the Rings, as we read it, um, through Tolkien's uh, mirror, is a translation from the Red Book, having been written by Bilbo, Frodo, and editions by Sam. I like that we see this boldly here. Whatever she loved us to Frodo is done off-page. When Sam arrives, she already has bound him in web and is dragging him away. Sam is our author most clearly at this stage, and it's always fun in a reread to think as you're going through, now who wrote this bit? Is it a poem? Well, we all know who that is. <laughs> is it self-deprecating? Then it's probably Sam. Sam grabs Sting and charges forward. No onslaught more fierce was ever seen in the savage world of beasts, where some desperate small creature armed with little teeth alone will spring upon a tower of horn and hide that stands above its fallen mate. This line, ostensibly about action and movement, also shows Tolkien's knack for cueing us into the emotional resonance of each scene. It is deep affection between Sam and Frodo to describe the start of what is ostensibly a fight scene. That's a great point, and that affection is not poetic here, but primal, with Tolkien comparing Sam to the world of beasts, as though he's engaging with Shelob on her level. The hobbits are increasingly so tired and scared that they're beyond conscious thought. They've been whittled down to their instincts, and now they act without thinking. In the last episode, I talked about Sam thinking of himself as a character in a story to be told, already part of the past. Here that self-awareness is shredded, and he inhabits the present. Not considering, as Tolkien writes, whether he's being brave or loyal or foolish, he's just acting. And maybe it's his total lack of pretense that makes him into the most furious opponent Shelob has ever seen. And does Sam have spirit? He cuts off a claw, pokes out an eye, she tries to flatten him, but uh, Sam drives Sting directly into her belly. He remembers the vial, and in drawing it seems to break into extemporaneous elvish, as I'm sure you and I have done, and everyone else of course. as well. <laughs> uh, which Tolkien translates us for, uh, for us in one of his uh, letters, letter 211. Uh, o Elbereth Starkindler, from heaven gazing afar, to thee I cry now in the shadow of death. O look towards me, ever white. Leave it to Tolkien, poetry on the very verge of death. The light of the file itself uh, wounds Shelob. It flamed like a star that leaping from the firmament sears the dark air with intolerable light. Shelob, deeply wounded, is driven off, and reinforcing that Sam is our narrator, what happens to Shelob? All we're given is, this tale does not tell. It's a really gripping action scene, in large part because Tolkien keeps switching between Sam and Shelob's perspective on a dime. He even has Sam literally put one of Shelob's eyes out, emphasizing that this is all about who is seeing who. For Sam, Shelob is like a dragon he's fighting, as a valiant knight, slashing about bravely with an elven blade. 
For Shelob, Sam is an insect caught in her web, and she doesn't even feel his pinpricks on her thick, tough hide. Again, Tolkien's imagery at its most elaborately horrifying. Knobbed and pitted with corruption was her age-old hide. You can imagine him beating his chest and reciting it as poetry. <laughs> Shelob is certain of her victory, because she couldn't be defeated by heroes like Baron or Turin. Ah, oh, but she's not up against them. She's up against Samwise Gamgee, and she dooms herself against him with her overconfidence. She tries not to bite nor sting him, but simply crush him. Sit her gigantic arachnoid ass on him like humans might step on a spider. But Sam drops his own blade and holds Frodo's high, symbolically claiming Frodo's role in the quest. And that's all he has to do. Hold your sword high. Be willing. And the enemy will break themselves upon you. Shelob spikes herself on Sting, driving herself deep onto it in her only vulnerable spot. As Tolkien writes, she does more damage to herself than the strongest warrior ever could have, and that's his villains in a nutshell. He lingers on Shelob's pain, and really, it's just awesome how he writes it. No such anguish had Shelob ever known, or dreamed of knowing in all her long world of wickedness. For all the pain she inflicts, she's unfamiliar with its bite, and reacts like a newborn child, not only hurt, but bewildered at the concept of hurt. Sauron, too, must think himself beyond pain. What does he feel when the ring goes out like a light? But Shelob's not dead, only wounded. And when we cut to Sam's perspective, he doesn't feel like a conquering hero. He feels like he's in the trenches with Tolkien, fighting his way through mist and a foul stench, reaching for his friend's face, hoping against hope they're still alive. Sam raises his head and meets Shelob's gaze instead. And he sees death in her eyes. He's been reduced to prey in this scene all about being like beasts in the wild. Sam is beyond thought, so when he responds, it's like it isn't even him. The voice comes from outside, a remote voice, Tolkien writes, as with Frodo. Again, Sam is taking up the gauntlet, invested with the same holy words and holy light. And I always think of the Simpsons bit at this point. To overcome the spider's curse, simply cite a Bible verse. And then Homer goes, thou shalt not, and then just throws a rock. <laughs> the vial is something tangible for Sam, and what he describes as a phantom world of horror. And again, this feels like a wartime story filtering into the spiritual confrontation. It's something working through him, but doesn't possess him like the ring. Hobbits have incredible resilience, the ability to snap back from the wraith world to being the son of Hamfast Gamgee, who couldn't even begin to imagine what has befallen his son. But even so, Sam's spirit makes the file light up, because that's what it's responding to. The will to live, defiance of the darkness, regardless of whether it's an elf or a hobbit doing it. And Tolkien really emphasizes the heat this time, like Sam's heart is on fire. The file is a torch, it burns Shelob's face, it sears the dark air, an incredible description that really captures the otherworldly power of what's happening. The air is seared like a stake. Just a few hours in the darkness made light painful for Frodo. Shelob's been here for centuries, and the light is even worse for her than for Gollum because of how big and sensitive her eyes are. It's the revenge of the light for Ungoliant's corruption. This time, the monster is defeated, as, quote, the dreadful infection of light operates like a disease eating up her power. Again, the imagery is gross, but now it's pathetic like Gollum. She jerks, she quivers, and then she's gone. Like you say, we don't get to know what happened. The narration shifts to a historical mode, as it often does in Lord of the Rings, saying it's unknown what happened to her. Tolkien again is nodding to the story structure, framing Lord of the Rings, as big as it is, as just a branch on the Tree of Life. Maybe Shelob dies? Maybe she restores herself and rules with dreadful snares and hunger like death. Either way, it's beyond Tolkien's powers to tell us. There's something disquieting about that, 
Either way, the damage is done, and Sam has to pick up the pieces. Tolkien tells us Sam was left alone. It is the evening on March 13th. He has a moment to finally look upon his fallen master, Frodo, who has been stung in the neck. He lay now pale and heard no voice and did not move. Sam's grief is palpable here. Master, dear master, don't leave me here alone. It's your Sam calling. Don't go where I can't follow. As he slowly realizes what he's seeing, he responds at first with anger. Uh, He ran about his master's body in a rage, stabbing the air and smiting the stones and shouting challenges. This is indeed the image that he himself had received in Lothlorien in the Mirror of Gladriel. After this anger, he sits in grief for an unknown time, puzzling about what to possibly do next. I mean, does he take the body of his beloved master out of this horrible place, which is pretty clearly the first thing that he thinks about? Does he seek to kill Gollum, which is another one of his motivations? Clearly, he's vengeful for his fallen master. Or does he take the ring and finish the quest alone? Uh, After some clear torment, he chooses that his earlier promise means that he has to finish this quest and not give in to his primal urge of trying to kill Gollum as he may have wanted. It would not be worthwhile to leave his master for that. Yet another cue back to his basic decency. He takes Sting in the file but leaves the mithril shirt and his barrel blade with Frodo. He hesitates with the ring. No chance to go back with it and get advice or permission. So then take it. It is, he decides. After he takes the ring, no change came over the still face, and by that more than all other tokens, Sam was convinced that at last Frodo had died and laid aside the quest. His last wish is to come back and find Frodo's body again, if he could when all of this was over. He says, goodbye, master, my dear. Forgive your Sam. He'll come back to this spot when the job's done, if he manage it, and then he'll not leave you again. This is maybe the most heartfelt passage in the whole story. Operatic drama that could make you weep to read it, especially that line, don't go where I can't follow. It's a perfect expression of grief, how unfair death feels, like a betrayal of your honest commitment to each other. I promised to go with you to the end. How can you reach your end before I reach mine? And there's a poetic quality as well to Tolkien's writing, the repetition of master, dear master, not so far off from how Gollum talked. All the imagery speaks to a grim beauty in death. Frodo is pale, cold, and silent. An elvish beauty, Sam thinks, glimpsed one last time in Galadriel's light. Something that is beyond him, and now behind him. Again, there's an operatic quality to this scene, as Sam gives vent to his rage, stabbing at the air, shouting challenges at the stone like he can force reality to give way and bring his master back. You can easily imagine him breaking into an aria. (laughs) And this is wretched. It just feels wrong to him. A sick joke to have come so far and failed on the threshold. Defeated not even by the Dark Lord, nor his ring, but by a spider, a fucking mini-boss. But as with many a tragic tale, he could have seen it coming. Sam saw a vision of Frodo at Lothlorien, he reminds us, pale and cold. And now he knows, dead. Prophecy didn't help him any. He only makes the connection now, when it's too late. Saying Frodo is dead is what makes it real, Sam thinks, as if words are so powerful they could bring venom to life. And I think most of us have experienced that, losing someone and not being able to say it. Because somehow, as long as it's only a thought, it's negotiable. It's not real. Words are real, even though they're no more solid than thought. Words are how we confess, including to ourselves. Tolkien finds so many different ways of describing despair in these chapters at the end of Book 4, 
but I don't think he ever puts it so concisely and effectively as he does here. Night came into Sam's heart. Grief so powerful that he blacks out. It's self-abnegation. I don't want to live on this planet anymore. Not without him who I loved. But eventually, he has to. Sam discovers the same thing that everyone who grieves discovers. The world, hatefully, carries on. The mountains had not crumbled, Tolkien writes. The earth had not fallen into ruin. If only it had. That would make it easier on Sam if the land reflected and affirmed the sorrow and rage inside him. But it's all still here, waiting for him. The world hasn't ended. The story hasn't ended, and that means it's his story now. Sam works that out step by painful step. The great irony here is that he's talking to himself, just like Gollum. Frodo also hears voices in his head, but they, they really are external to him. It's the ring versus the creator. It's Sauron versus Iluvatar. For Sam, as with Gollum, both voices are his. Sam is not used to thinking of himself this way, as the product of a collision rather than a stable singular thing. It's the complexity he always thinks belongs to someone else. Frodo or Bilbo or Gandalf. Never me, simple straightforward Sam. This isn't my story. I don't have to make the choices. But the name of this chapter says otherwise. The choices of Master Samwise, his own master now. He hears himself speaking words he didn't understand at the time, Tolkien writes. A promise he now has to keep. A measure of his growth. I will see it through to the end with him. Like marriage vows that are now being tested. After all, the promise was sealed with a ring. But the prospect of abandoning Frodo in this dark, dead place is unimaginable. And Sam honestly contemplates suicide, joining Frodo rather than leaving him behind. He stares at his sword, trying to see past it to the other side. He can't. There's only nothingness, and he can't bear nothingness. So if he's to live, what is he to live for? Vengeance, he thinks first, getting back at that traitorous sneak. And again, the blunt, direct way Tolkien writes Sam pays dividends. All Sam wants, he thinks, is for Gollum to die in a corner. Feel some of the pain and helplessness. Again, a very common feeling when you've lost someone. You want to pass on these horrible feelings. Get them off you and onto someone else. If Gollum felt this way, oh, he'd get it. He'd understand and know how wrong he is, what a villain he is. And some part of Sam would only be satisfied with that. But the rest of him knows that this is an insult to grief. Not what Frodo would want him to do, and not what Frodo meant to do. Sam must become Frodo now. The debate rages in his head. They gave him the ring, not me. But why else send companions, he responds to himself, except for this moment. I shouldn't put myself forward. I'm just not important enough. But Frodo and Bilbo didn't put themselves forward. They were called forth. Like I said last week, sometimes story chooses you. Frodo himself went through this same struggle. He didn't just wake up as the protagonist one day any more than Sam did. Their pain is the point. The fact that they regard the ring as a burden, rather than a precious, is what's allowed them to come this far. Sam might wish Gandalf was here, but Gandalf refused the ring, and for good reason. So Sam becomes the ring bearer, taking it from a Frodo with a delicacy both sacred and erotic, a ritual transformation. This is as close as Sam can get to burying him leaving Frodo in honor with his other belongings, trying not to feel like a grave robber. As Kent says in King Lear, I have a journey, sir, shortly to go. My master calls me. I must not say no. Frodo doesn't so much as flinch, and that's what convinces Sam that he's really dead. He wouldn't give up his quest otherwise. And Sam is more right than he knows. When Frodo later realizes that Sam took the ring, he reacts angrily, violently, 
resembling Gollum. As for Sam, he bears the ring's weight just fine, the burden feeling less as he goes. It has nothing to work on with him. You have to want something for the ring to work on you, and all Sam ever wanted was to help the person he is now walking away from. That's the true burden for Sam. He's not sure of his choice, no matter how many times he tells himself to be, because like Frodo told him, even if your destiny is written by an all-knowing author, you don't know how your own story is going to end. So Sam stands motionless in intolerable doubt, Tolkien writes, capturing the angst of Hamlet in his indecision, or Orpheus, unable to stop himself from looking back, as Sam does here. He thinks he sees Frodo still, but his gaze is blurred by tears. He's being pulled back like a magnet because Frodo gave his life meaning, and Sam doesn't know how to do that with his own choices. Every step forward is the hardest, and it's another echo of The Hobbit, Bilbo thinking that every step forward into Smaug's lair was the hardest moment of his life. And just as Sam thinks he's determined to step into Mordor proper, and most alone, he hears voices, behind and before him, multiple voices, orc voices, and he puts on the ring. (laughs) He was not aware of any thought or decision. An incredibly bold move for Sam to make here on the precipice of Mordor. With the ring on, he hears much better and seems to be able to translate the orcish. Certainly the ring had grown greatly in power as it approached the places of its forging. The orcs find Frodo, a spy, they think, while Sam thinks about his uh, how to kill them for going near his master's body. He hears them snatch up the body and take it back to the tower. The orc named Shagrat seems to identify immediately that they might be that uh, they might be got something that Lugborgs wants. Readers might be more familiar with this as Baradur, of course, the Dark Lord's mighty fortress. We get quite a lot of in this chapter of what can really only be called orcish gossip. <laughs> we learn that the winged Nazgul are in favor with the Dark Lord. Presumably, or at least my guess is that this would be a change from them being out of favor, maybe after the fall of the Fords of Bruinen. That there are messages sent faster than they should be by flight. That uh, they both hope that when things improve after the war, they seem to recall old times in which there were no bosses and they could set up somewhere on their own. A bit of homesteading uh, orcs. <laughs> they refer to Gollum as Shelob's sneak. He is remembered from when he left Lugsburg years ago. The orcs seem to be clear the enemy of the orcs hates them just as much as the enemy, their master. The enemies don't love us any more than they love him, and if they get topsides on him, we're done too. Sam overhears that there seems to have been an indication that the hobbits were perceived prior to their arrival. Shagrat's got word that spies were feared on the stairs, and Gorbag reports that Minus Morgul's silent watchers were disturbed. This is confirmed when they figure out that Frodo wasn't alone. Surely he wasn't. How was Shelob wounded if Frodo was bound, or how did Frodo become bound if Shelob had already been wounded? The repeated phrase that's used here is, something has slipped. Tolkien's addition of this is not necessarily critical to the plot, but it is one of the most intriguing aspects and interesting passages in this ongoing debate that much of us in the fandom have on the morality of orcs overall. It's a simultaneously mundane and profound statement. This is, of course, the hallmark of what keeps us rereading. I love that bit where Sam puts the ring on. Very trippy, very much my shit. You can see why the psychedelic generation fell in love with Lord of the Rings. The world changed, Tolkien writes. A filter of unreality added to everything. And again we come back to eyes. Sam's vision is blurred. And while he's invisible to the orcs, he knows he is all too visible to the great eye hunting for him. But his hearing is superpowered now. A godlike awareness of every little sound. Including the bubbling misery of Shelob 
an oddly sympathetic note that emphasizes how the threat now comes from the orcs, with their deafening stamps and cries. They look like a phantom company, Tolkien writes, a dream of fear. We've seen this with Frodo as well. The ring makes the people around you fade like they're part of the past, part of a story, not part of the world you now inhabit, alone with the Dark Lord. Sam can hear the orcs, though, and not only that, he can understand them, thanks to the ring's influence. So he knows when they find Frodo's body, and that causes Sam to lose his goddamn mind. It could not be born, he thinks, exactly what Thorin's father Thrain says when the orcs of Moria kill his father Thror. Love can make us forget our duty, as George R. R. Martin wrote, and Sam immediately abandons all that tortured determination to keep the quest going, deciding to fly back to Frodo's side. Even though, as Tolkien writes, there's nothing for him to actually do. Sam keeps his head enough to know he can't fight off the orcs. If he tries and fails, they'll take the ring from his corpse, and it's game over. Yet Sam still tells himself he can't be the ring bearer after all, because his place is with Frodo. It's an interesting example of Sam's humility working against him. Tolkien wrote in a 1963 fan letter about Sam that he's meant to be lovable and laughable, but Sam can be very trying. He is a more representative hobbit than any others we have to see much of, and he is consequently a stronger ingredient of that quality which even some hobbits found at times hard to bear. A vulgarity, by which I do not mean a mere down-to-earthiness, a mental myopia which is proud of itself, a smugness in varying degrees, and cocksureness, a readiness to measure and sum up all things from a limited experience, largely enshrined in traditional wisdom. He did not think of himself as heroic or even brave, or in any way admirable, except in his service and loyalty to his master. That had an ingredient, probably inevitable, of pride and possessiveness. It is difficult to exclude it from the devotion of those who perform such service. In any case, it prevented him from fully understanding the master that he loved. And I think that's, that's a really interesting exploration of his character, and the, the problems he can create for himself. And so now we're in the odd position of rooting against Sam hoping he doesn't manage to catch up to the orcs, because then he really might ruin everything forever. It's all about his choices, for better or worse. Thankfully, I guess, the orcs know this area better than he does, and keep ahead of him with Frodo's body. They don't even notice his sword, so much for a heroic last stand. As he goes, he overhears the orc captains arguing. And this is an expansion on that chapter in Book 3, in which Merry and Pippin are captives of the orcs, taking advantage of divisions between the orcs from Mordor and the Urukai from Isengard. And like that chapter, the tone here is a wild mixture of horror and humor. What's happening is awful from Sam's perspective, but there's something very funny about how petty the orcs turn out to be. They're the corruption of life, they're the servants of the shadow, but they're also the Mordor equivalent of middle managers, engaged in endless turf wars amongst themselves. Shagrat has come down from the Tower of Kirith Ungol. Gorbag has come up from the city of Minas Morgul. They're on the same side, and they're on the brink of a war, but you never hear them talking about how much they hate the men of Gondor or like the Urukai from Isengard. It's each other they hate, along with their underlings and their bosses alike. This is the miserable grind of life under the shadow, alienation and resentment, with nothing resembling a community. Both of them despise their followers for making so much noise and conspire with each other out of their earshot, but not Sam's. What their bosses have in common, according to them, is that they're fucking everything up. Back in Athelion, Sam wondered if the dead Southron he saw really wanted to march to war at all. And here we see that many of Sauron's orcs are waiting for an opportunity to desert him, set themselves up somewhere as petty warlords like before the Dark Lord's return. Like old times, they say, with no big bosses. 
It's the same seething rebellion we'll see with Wormtongue in the Shire, when he finally turns on Saruman for all his ill treatment. So right after we saw an army so massive it shattered Frodo's hope, we learn that fear is all that's keeping the enemy's troops in line, and even that might not be doing the trick. Tyrants only hold sway as long as they look strong. Power resides where orcs believe it resides, and they're starting to doubt both Sauron and the Nazgul. What keeps them in place? What else but propaganda? They've been told that their enemies will wipe them out if Sauron loses, just as Saruman told the Dunlendings that the Rohirrim burn their prisoners alive. Long before George R. R. Martin's line about Aragorn slaughtering orc babies in their orc cradles, Tolkien was incorporating that possibility into the text. War makes monsters of us all, if only in each other's eyes. It's hilarious that the orcs also call Gollum sneak, dude just can't catch a break. And I do like that the orc captains are portrayed as intelligent, rather than just dumb muscles Sauron is using as pawns. They're caught between Sauron and Shelob, he and she, the godlike parents of their world, and they have to suss out what might have happened. Gorbag realizes, as you say, that Frodo couldn't have been alone, because someone cut the ties that bound him, just as Faramir realized someone must have prepared Boromir's funeral boat. Plus, someone drove off Shelob. Well, that's impressive, it must be a mighty elven warrior with a big damn hero sword. Sam smiles at this, and the reader does too. It's the mistake the enemy keeps making, assuming that our heroes would try to win through martial means, like they are. Mighty elven warriors never dismayed Shelob, and Gilgalad fell on the slopes of Mount Doom. It's the humble hobbits who will see this thing through. The whole point is that the enemy would never even suspect this to be the case. And now we get to the kicker of the choices of Master Samwise. This fellow isn't dead. Mm-hmm. They make it very clear that the standing orders are that all prisoners are to be stripped, cataloged of possessions, and then Baradur notified. Shelob can paralyze prey, as she seems to have done to an old friend of theirs that they leave bound and alive horrifically for Shelob to have as a future little snack. Sam, horrified at the knowledge that this fellow isn't dead, catches up to them, but because of the ring, they are further away than he hears, and so while we might think for a second he's actually caught up, they are quite a ways down the tunnel. The passage ends in two large doors, uh, behind which a raucous party is taking place. Sam is about to miss them, with a not-dead Frodo being taken into an orc tower. Sam, heroic to the last, charges the door with Sting, shouting, unheeded from the noise of the party inside as the door shuts. He was out in the darkness. Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy. Sam is just reeling in shock and self-loathing at this point. It's almost as much a blow as when he thought Frodo was dead, because now the orcs have him as a prisoner. Tolkien sets up a great contrast here, as yeah, Shagrat remembers when Shelob took one of his orcs captive, and they just laughed and left him there. Staggering cruelty to one of their own. Imagine being that orc thinking you've been saved and realizing, no, they're going to leave me. It's the exact opposite of how Sam feels about Frodo. That cruelty will now be meted out to Frodo, the orcs giggling gleefully about how much he'll suffer at the Dark Tower. We don't have Gollum around to hate anymore, so these guys will do. Sam chases them down, ready to fight like he fought Shelob, like he's the big damn hero they think he is, and then the doors slam close in his face. It's a brutal ending to book four, leaving our emotions in a tangle. We got our hopes back up for Frodo, only for them to be denied. Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy, that final line, the culmination of a book's worth of temptation and corruption. But on reread, Tolkien is laying the groundwork for how this will all work out. Shagrat and Gorbag are already fighting each other about how to handle Frodo. Ironically, he's a source of discord for them even without the ring on him, 
and their infighting is what allows Sam to rescue his master and keep the quest going in Book 6. It's only so painful because Sam loves Frodo that much, and that love and friendship will win the day in the end. So I've been wrapping up each of these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations by Peter Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago. So Ben, what, do you, what did you think of, of how uh, The Return of the King handles uh, this part of the material? Yeah, so I think in the movies, obviously, this is one of the significant, most significant, I would say, changes to fit the overall narrative that the writers were trying to make in that specific movie trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and besides it, of course, being in the third film, as you said, um, rather than set in the middle here, um, there's of course, the separation of Sam and Frodo after climbing the stairs, but prior to entering the tunnel. And uh, Philippa Boyens, who's a writer on the movies, of course, in addition to Fran Walsh and Peter, has indicated that they sort of did this for two reasons and that in the writer's room, it wasn't that much of a question for them. Um, The first, of course, is so that Gollum's movie-long arc of trying to separate the two would finally have some payoff. And that also it would raise the stakes when Frodo entered the tunnel, obviously being by himself. And while it dramatically changes things, I think in terms of what the movies are trying to do, it makes a lot of sense. It certainly amps up the creepy factor when we actually get into the tunnel itself. This atmosphere, of course, is straight out of the evocative language of Tolkien. Um, It culminates in Frodo falling directly into a pit of already decaying corpses and spider webs. It's horrifying. Um, and it's supported by a score that I think is bone chilling, but also very different from the traditional, what we think of as the sort of majestic strings version of Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. This is discordant and creepy, and there are instruments here that aren't used anywhere else. Um, it's like Howard Shore is directly looking into a megaphone shouting, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> Go home. Uh, to Love Herself is, of course, another of the trilogy's long line of really good monster creations. Uh, her sort of rotted and decaying face seems to be the motif that they chose for anybody who lives in Mordor. Mm-hmm. There's something visually wrong with you because the, the sort of landscape itself is eating away at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the terror that she inspires as she sort of looms over a Frodo is real. And I can certainly remember being, you know, like a 13 year old in the movie theater about losing my mind. Um, and yes, thinking me that, too. Yeah, and thinking that this, you know, I for a second almost forgot that this was not the end. <laughs> uh, that was so powerful for me. Um, of course, Sam's battle with Shelob is heroic as it is in the text. Um, this David versus Goliath metaphor could not be done any better. And uh, especially when they zoom out the camera to give you full uh, access of what's happening and you see just how small uh, they made the scale. Truly fantastic. Um, and the realization that Frodo is not dead on Sean Astin's face is heartbreaking, just mm-hmm. as a bonefish. It's a great sort of propulsion, and it's really necessary because of the the difference in where it is in sort of a story that this is not the end. It's merely the next thing to get you excited. And for um, the movie in which I think a lot of fans, or maybe more casual fans, are sort of, you know, zooming forward to get to the next battle scene, this is a really good example of, you know, the next scene might be a battle scene, but I'm still wondering, well, okay, enough of the swords. I'd like to get back to where Frodo is, which I think is pretty successful. Yeah, I agree that I think they the clear focus on adaptation was how do we make these events fit the story structure we kind of already have propelling us forward from Two Towers, and we're trying to wrap things up. And even in the theatrical form, The Return of the King was already pushing the boundaries of being too long for people's attention spans, and I kind mm-hmm. of think they knew that, and they were they were trying to... Even even as they created new scenes, like you say, to kind of gin up the emotional drama, they had to to cut as much to the bone as they could. But I think that's it's really effective because I think... Sean Astin is such a good communicative actor that you can get so much from him without 
all the details that Tolkien puts into it as much as I love those details. And, you know, because this is not, the movies aren't part of the same kind of legendarium and overarching mythology as The Lord of the Rings, you don't, you don't need to know anything about what Shelob is or where she comes from in the movies. You know, you can just, you, you can get the sense of, of the, the haunted house atmosphere, like you said. And yeah, I love, again, you can really tell that Peter Jackson used to make horror movies. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's got this, this wonderful old-timey quality in the same way that I, I love the practical effects in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies that were coming out around this time. Yeah, very that, much. That, that sense of almost being over-decorated, but how every, every detail is just so, you can just smell it and you can get the sense of what the atmosphere would be like. And a great point about the score, too. I remember it because they... They also use the score in the in the video game adaptations of these movies. And Shelob's Lair was a very difficult level, especially the boss fight. So I heard that ba 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 motif over and over again as I kept restarting that boss battle. So it is it is burned into the old cortex for me. And it is it's a great point. It is so different from like the the sad strings and horns you get with like the Rahirim or the stuff at Gondor. Like this is it's like it's a different genre all of a sudden. Yeah, th- uh, try, I think it's really effective. Yeah, try listening to this song like right after uh, concerning hobbits, and you realize that the range. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. It's he's hitting every possible beat. That's that's wonderful stuff. So this is as I was saying, this is we're wrapping up book four. I'm gonna be shifting into book five next and things are getting very uh, far flung in terms of where they all the characters are but it's it's also important because they're really engaged in the same struggle at this point so uh you had a, a great idea and i want to turn it over to you to talk about just the kind of the timeline of of where we are uh, in lord of the rings and what's happening with other characters relative to what's happening here with frodo and sam yeah sure so one of the cool things that part of a reread gives us is that we can sort of recognize that somewhere in Tolkien's study, there must have been a large map of character names and where they are sort of moving around. Um, because we've gotten to the point here where we are roughly two, less than two weeks out from sort of the, quote, end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in many ways, of course, as in the movie, there is quite a lot after the, quote, <laughs> end of the movie. End it's book. true. The road goes on and on and on. On and on. <laughs> and on and on. Uh, however, we are, we're really less than two weeks out from sort of the end. And so when you think about what is happening off chapter, there's a lot happening off chapter. Um, and it's really interesting and fun to sort of go back and think about that, you know, a little bit prior to where we are right now, um, at the same time that we have sort of, you know, Frodo sleeping, uh, sleeping, Gollum talking to Shelob, setting all this up, we have an assault on Lothlorien. So, you know, Gladriel is engaged in a story um, and Eastern Rohan is being invaded by orcs that Treebeard is taking care of, like all of these things are happening in the background. And so in particular for March 13th, which is sort of the day in which the last two chapters that we just talked about have been happening, obviously big stuff is going on. Frodo is captured by the orcs, but at the same time, right outside the door, uh, all of the Pelennor is being overrun. This is the day in which um, sort of uh, Faramir is wounded by the dart of, the, uh, of a black rider who's now not on uh, sort of the flying beasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aragorn himself has reached the Pelagir and sort of is capturing a fleet. And so he's already had a very significant <laughs> part of the journey that we hear about in another great Tolkienism, which is, tell me, sir, of the story that happened off page. Right. Sing to me, muse, as (laughs) as as they say at the start of the Odyssey. Yep. (laughs) Yes, as we've seen sort of with Mary Pippin and all that good stuff. Um, And, of course, Theoden is riding with the Rohirrim. He's right outside the Druidan Forest. And so all Mm -hmm. of these things uh, are sort of happening at this end. Um, We're getting close to um, the Lonely Mountain and Dale being attacked and besieged. And so sort of as we're starting to see the little pieces move together. And even though all of our characters are 
far flung to the you know four corners of Middle Earth, all the pieces are starting to happen. Um, it's, it's you know reminiscent of one of the great drawn up lines for uh, the movies. The pieces are moving. Exactly. Yes. Thank you so much for laying that out because it's I think for. I think for some people, book four is the relative weak spot in Lord of the Rings because it is, you know, they're going place to place and you, you kind of have definitely have an urge, especially after being so tightly confined in Shelob's lair to get back to that big chessboard. And it's great to think about all the all the wild stuff we're going to be talking about in book five happening around the same time. So, yeah, we're going to have, uh, have a great time doing some episodes on book five before Jeff comes back to the podcast. Incredible stuff at Minas Tirith with Gandalf and Pippin. And then we jump over to Merry riding with the Rahiram and Aragorn going off to recruit an army of ghosts like you do. <laughs> and then and then it all comes uh, gloriously back together uh, at the Pelennor Fields. Uh, where we wrap things up in book five before moving on to the Black Gate. So I'm going to have a, a great time going through those chapters. But uh, Ben, thank you so much for coming on. I was really looking forward to this. Uh, it was a blast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm sort of learning, obviously, from your notes as well. And I had honestly never thought about sort of the mirror image of Shelob and Gladriel before. I'm obsessed with this concept of Gimli falling in love with a lady of light, Shelob, the queen of the fair peoples. <laughs> Gimli uh, starts flirting with a spider. Yes. It's him, true. Him telling his friend Legolas wistfully I asked her for one of her horrid coarse spider hairs she <laughs> and gave she gave it three. to me that's amazing no it's true I, I, I like I found one article about it and I kept finding more it's like apparently this is it's a big thing in Tolkien scholarship is this comparison and that was that was really interesting to read about yeah I'll have to look into it because it's a perfect match it really it really fits wonderfully especially since how much Galadriel is brought up in book four it kind of makes sense that that we're, we're leading into this so where can I, where can people find you online yeah, so again, uh, thank you so much for having me. I've been a longtime fan, and so it's good to sort of chat about this. Um, my name is Ben Nielsen. You can find me on Twitter to connect uh, at Benji Nielsen, B-E-N-J-I-N-I-E-L-S-E-N. Um, certainly would love to talk uh, about uh, Tolkien with anyone or certainly Grimm's World as well. Um, all sorts of nerdy things and uh, obviously connecting with fellow fans of the Not A Cast podcast. So that's going to wrap us up for book four of Lord of the Rings. Before we shift into book five, I'm going to be having our old friend Stefan Sasse on next week to talk about the uh, the recent movie, The Last Duel, that came out last year. We're going to do an episode on that. And if you are in our Not A Slack community, if you're one of our uh, High Lords and Ladies or Small Council patrons, we're actually going to be doing uh, a watch of The Last Duel together on uh, Wednesday the 25th. At this point, I uh, have it scheduled for 8 p.m. I'll make an official announcement later. But yeah, if, you're, if you uh, haven't checked out our, our Slack yet, come over to patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And $20 a month and above patrons can, can join in the Slack. And we're going to maybe make a monthly thing out of it by watch, watching movie all together. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. So thanks again for listening. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts. Like I said, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter. So next week, we're going to be jumping into The Last Duel and then proceeding on with Book 5 of Lord of the Rings. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon with more Lord of the Rings.